record now, and now I think I'm recording. Me too. I think I'm recording as well. Uh, and one, two, three. What is this happening? This isn't happening yet. Uh, beep beep beep. Joe wrote. Um, I'm Ryan. Yeah, you are. <laughs> the longest fucking delays ever. I'm that one was Ryan. I, I'm Harland. And we're this the is Doddler's the, Philosophy. No, we're, this is the Doddler's Philosophy podcast. God. No. Um, and uh, we're back to, to discuss more interesting things to brighten up all zero listeners' lives. Uh, our number one fan is with us and cheering us on the whole time, just being like, oh, you're the best. And, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is what Doddlers do. Tonight's topic, I'm just going to say it in one word, and that word is emergence. And it's a topic that Harland and I have discussed on many occasions. Um, and I think sometimes we do, we have fun with it and other times we're like, oh, fuck this conversation again, but it keeps coming back. <laughs> it doesn't really keep coming. It's not like there's like new information on emergence tonight. You know, like breaking emergence news, you know? Um, but nonetheless, we still keep going back to it. Like it's a, it's just a, it's like a comforting blanket at this point. We're just like, ah. Send me to sleep, emergence. Um, and of course, it's ugly brother reductionism, who, uh, you know, it's uh, you know if you, when you're ugly, uh, I don't know. There's nothing I can do to help it. That's how we do it in this new media, right? You're supposed to just state your biases right out front, and then it's okay. Yeah, basically. But that's okay because I'm not the one who's going to be providing. Uh, Let's just say the greatest amount of insight tonight. Um, I'm not supposed to say that either. But that's my way. I just kind of like, oh, chips on the table. I'm like, I'm betting it all. I know that there's a 10 of hearts in that down card. Whatever. I don't know card lingo. So, Harland. I don't know. I mean, yeah, so it's a comforting blanket, and we don't know why we keep going back to it. I somewhat think... I'm surprised by how little airtime this topic gets in general, because it seems to me like a pretty big deal. It being a metaphysical thesis that affects everything we deal with in daily life, and all, almost all, every what they call special science, uh, it's, I don't know, it seems like a big issue to me. Um, not enough people spend enough time on it. Um, such that I don't even know I would agree. When, a per- when you like announce at the top, I'm going to give you a one-word topic for the night, emergence. What percent of a crowd, well, I guess it would be zero of zero, but uh, of even <laughs> intelligent listeners, such as would click on this podcast, would even know or to what extent they would know what we re- meant or what we're talking about. 
So I guess we'll have to enlighten them. Sheeple. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, that's a thought that I've never had. I'm never like, hmm, I wonder what other people think of emergence. I've just always just been like, I think of emergence and sometimes in certain circumstances like those that you and I have engaged in discussion wise. I've been like, yeah, let's talk about this thing. It's a weird one, though, in that respect, in that I guess um, it's a lonely one, but it's one we visit quite often. I think we visit it often, even in jest, yeah. like when we joke, when we're with friends and we're like, what are we talking about this time? And everyone's like, emergency, you know, or whatever, or determinism. You know, those it's are these, definitely like, become one of those words that in our in a crowd we say in italics. So the, well, I'll just start by throwing out the Stanford Encyclopedia definition, or you know what they say near the beginning of their article on emergence. Okay, we might roughly characterize the shared meaning because there have been a variety of accounts over time. We might roughly characterize the shared meaning thus. Emergent entities, properties or substances, quote-unquote arise out of more fundamental entities and yet are novel or irreducible with respect to them, them being these fundamental entities. Emergent entities arise out of more fundamental ones and yet are somehow novel or irreducible to the fundament. And then, you know, you get the classic examples. And these things probably most people have heard of are like traffic jam. Is it? Is there anything? Is it just the cars? Or is there a phenomenon? Is there? Do we need to include traffic? Or the wetness of water? Right? Or the something having a temperature instead of just the molecular kinetic energy or whatever. Um I tend to think that other people think. Like, I think some ver folk version of emergence is the, the natural position, the non-theoretical position. Regular folk live in their regular life, believe in traffic and swimming pools and cars and tables and you know they believe in all of these large level things not merely whatever the physics of the day says is the fundament the substance the unsplittable particles the whatever they're whatever the physicists say but as with most folk theories I don't know that it can hold up very well to reductionist attack, right? That um, when Steven Weinberg or whoever it is comes around and says, well, you know, maybe there is no such thing really as a glass of water. There's just all these atoms or subatomic particles or fields or whatever their favorite story is nowadays 
And if I can tell the entire story of the unfolding of cause in the universe without ever referencing these higher level entities, then maybe we just shouldn't believe in them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. <clears throat> uh, do you want me to go on or do you <laughs> want to continue your, <laughs> yourself? I don't want to interrupt, that's all. Well, you couldn't. Any contribution, you you know, it's, you, it's never an interruption. It's just fair. I know, but you know, when you talk about those things, it does make me think of stuff and I don't want to derail anything at the moment, that's all. Okay, well, I'll push forward slightly more and then you can go back and say your key. Yeah, I mean, we can of, always revisit, yeah. yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Okay, continue. The term emergence came about, I guess, somewhere in the mid-1800s uh, and then was... The first big name that talked about it was, I guess, John Stuart Mill. And then, with hindsight, in 2018, looking back and talking about the history of the term emergence in the literature, everyone talks about these early British emergentists in the early 1900s. Um, Alexander... Lloyd Alexander, uh, Morgan, and the C.D. Broad guy. Um, they all had slightly different versions of it. I just wanted to start with a quote from Broad about the alternative. Because I think in order to get into whatever we ought to call this more sophisticated version of emergence rather than just the folk version, that we kind of have to go through the challenge of the mirological nihilists of the arch reductionists who want to say nope it's all just Adam's following laws so here's Broad's version of that position there is one and only one kind of material each particle of this obeys one elementary law of behavior and continues to do so no matter how complex may be the collection of particles of which it is a constituent. There is one uniform law of composition connecting the behavior of groups of these particles. All the apparently different kinds of stuff are just differently arranged groups of different numbers of the one kind of elementary particle, and all the apparently peculiar laws of behavior are simply special cases which could be deduced in theory from the structure of the whole under consideration. For me, that works pretty well to specify the kind of Laplacean or Democritian position of that there's just atoms and whatever laws that the atoms obey. Everything that you think there is, cups and tables and ducks and shotguns and whatever, is all just combinations of atoms, but there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's still just atoms following laws. And so that if we want to develop a version of emergence that would be considered scientifically respectable, 
we're going to have to come up with one that accepts and addresses that challenge, I think. And maybe that's just me. I don't yeah. know. But I, and I went through a phase of being oriented in that direction. Of just saying, yeah, none of this stuff exists. It's all just an illusion or a convenient fiction. And we <laughs> need to be really hard and materialist and physicalist. And it's just atoms and that's better. I have since been wanting to come out the other side of that into a developed version of an emergentist worldview, but I want it to be one that respects the force of the reductionist challenge. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think that's a really nice way to put it because clearly the, the running rivalry is between a reductionist approach to say that all, all it is is just atoms um, and then sort of the emergentist approach, which is to say, hey, we got some extra entities up at the top here that are doing their own thing and then they do things with other things and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, there's also, I guess, the sort of apologist who tries to do both and compromises or compatibilizes or whatever with the supervenient stuff, which basically just says whatever it is that's happening at a higher level, you know, is, you know, whatever, whatever's going on, it's definitely uh, comprised of the smaller stuff below it. Uh, and I don't know if they collapse it down to just the fundament always. But anyway. Uh, I don't know. I, I the thing that I was having an issue with the whole the the um, the reductionist types of claims that it's just all atoms or whatever um, is just that there's you know there from the physicist's point of view I think that could be very well um, a position to take you know a good one. Um, all that the physicist tends to be focusing on, I think all that information is available to them to maybe draw those types of conclusions. Um, but then if you look at other sciences, um, like other, say, let's just say cognitive sciences, there also seems to be quite a few other types of phenomena that suggest... Um, that there is a hierarchical arrangement um, in the way that we talk, in the way that we make tools, in the way that we do things. You know, just it's a it's an operation that we possess that is, you know, oriented certainly by neurological networks, but also the circuits, etc. And that, um, you know, I I have. I have thought at times, like, what if that's the starting point? And then from there, the way that we are as biological organisms, specifically our lineage with our ability to talk and it being hierarchically arranged potentially and the way that we make tools and that being hierarchically, hierarchically arranged, um, and maybe even just sort of the way we think by embedding thing into thing into thing, that gives us the story 
of the reductionist that gives us the reductionist story that we then can say, huh, if we extrapolate from the reductionist point of view, then we can say it's all just atoms. But what if we began someplace else at a, at a point where maybe, maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's a way that we think in the way that we use words and language and symbols, et cetera, that, you know, overrides even that. Because we require that to tell the story of the reductionist claims. And it is that which also possesses these other kinds of properties, these hierarchical arrangements that, I don't know, it's just always been kind of an issue for me, having learned some more about cognitive science, to then say, oh, well, it's all just reductionist, as if that would be the thing that gave us the way to peer into what's going on. I think just as many people are peering into what's going on into the, you know, how language is constructed and how um, you know, how other things are constructed, our technology and stuff like that. Anyway. What I'm hearing in that, and maybe I don't know if this is where you were going or not, <clears throat> is what they call methodological reductionism. That a recent example of that that stuck in my mind is the whole E.O. Wilson consilience program that Every time we can, we being scientists, I guess, whatever that means, um, <laughs> reduce a quote-unquote higher level research program to a lower, we do it. Uh, we seem to get higher degrees of confidence when we do so, more complete causal etiologies of events, uh, more experimental agreement and replication success, etc. When we can take, um, and this is one of the things that these early reductionists were concerned with. This was back in the days when there was, you know, vitalists and entelechies and all of this stuff because um, biology was new and, com you know, complicated. Now it's not complicated anymore, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were saying, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could reduce biology to chemistry, chemistry to physics, etc. And that, right. I think, still is a tendency we want to do. Can we reduce psychology to cognitive science, to neurology, to biology, to chemistry, to physics? You know, like, can we knock everything down all the way? And if so, we should try to for all of the other theoretical and practical virtues that accrue from anchoring things in our most fundamental theories. But if that is, if reductionism, the way you described it, is to be a challenge, my thinking is, well, is the hurdle that it has to get over as well is to say, and maybe you can do this for me right now, I don't know, but um, the idea of breaking things down and building them up by joining them or whatever, to me, that seems like how can we say that isn't doesn't say more about us than the universe and all that kind of stuff? Like, how, could that just be us and our bias in everything? And wherever we go, we find things that we can break down and build up. And so, therefore, yes, it is, you know, if we just keep breaking down, we'll eventually find the bottom. And then that will be the fundament that builds everything else. And we can then say, oh, it's just that, you know. 
But then, of course, that never seems to be the case even in physics. They keep finding other things that... And is that saying more about us than it is about the universe? And that's where I didn't want to derail us because that might be a separate conversation than, or one that we can have later on tonight uh, once we've had other parts of the discussion. That's all. Uh, so that's why I was hesitant. But it still like rose up in me and I couldn't help but like, you know, uh, chirp up or, or whatever the fucking phrase is that I want to use. Okay, right. The question, is it us or is it the universe? Right. Huge question in itself and has been a major division in the history of the literature of emergence reduction debate. I, th I don't know if it's been always, but definitely the one that's ascendant now is a version of an it's us, I think, or that's how I read it, picture. Emergentists typically are broken into two major camps, the epistemological emergentist and the ontological emergentist. And the epistemological emergentists refer to the way to create a new level. Like, I mean, if we're going to talk in level terms, is that fine? That makes sense? Is that fine? Like yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. A level of description, and then those kind of accord with the special sciences, and that has mapped decently to the way our academic institutions have developed. We make new sciences, new journals, or whatever, that deal with questions on all these different levels. So when I'm breaking these emergentists into two camps, it's kind of how do we establish a new level? So for the epistemological emergentist, a new level is warranted, apt. You know, we are willing to countenance a level here if the goings-on at said level, quote, cannot be predicted from, unquote, facts on level zero or whatever you know level one is a distinct level on which there are emergent entities or properties if either we can't or it can't as though there were a difference there you know sometimes people want to talk about it could not be done even in theory that a prediction <laughs> could be made i'm of course as a skeptic and you know kind of hostile to those kind of moves i don't know what gives you the right to say what can or can't be done rather than point out a limitation in yourself i can't figure out how to but so if you mm. if i can't predict what goes on in the world of duck hunting with the tools on the level of quantum physics then <laughs> maybe this biological level gets its ontological credentials. The, so that's the epistemological ones. Can't be predicted. And that seems to be the more popular, a larger population in 2018. The other camp is the ontological emergence camp, and they talk about what are maybe more vague and difficult to establish criteria. 
such as novelty or downward causal powers, right? So that they don't really care whether or not human theorists or hypothetical superhuman theorists can or can't predict what's going to happen. They're, I, to me, this is a stronger claim. They're saying, nope, it is a genuinely novel property in the universe. It was not around at time zero, and at time two, it is. At one point, there were no ducks, and now there are whatever, you know. And that there's, there's just something genuinely new that arose. And then one of the ways, maybe the most popular way, of trying to establish, well, how do you know if there's something new or whatever, is if there's reason to suspect that these higher level entities have a causal influence on things at a lower level. This thing that they call downward causation. Um... That would be, I think, a reason to claim, oh, okay, well, then this property is both real and new. I don't know if that makes sense yet. It's kind of a tough one. I mean, I, I, I think I follow. Um, but uh, there's something about... Um, the fogginess of novelty. I like yeah. downward causation a little bit more because it seems uh, more tractable an idea. Novelty, like we've had this discussion before, where I think that in some senses I've described things as being novel, maybe from an epistemological emergence perspective, and you were like, no, that's not novel. And then, so you must have been pulling from this ontological one, which is like, you know, that, uh, you know, like a, you know, like some of the first organisms or whatever that ever existed or something could be new or whatever, you know, like a very different uh, way that, you know, materials can, you know, uh, interact and be arranged and stuff like that, greater than whatever the basic chemistry you know, principles of chemistry are, or something like that. Um, and so, I don't know. Um, so that's the part that I guess I would be confused about is the novelty aspect. I don't know if we can set that aside for now and continue on, or if we need to address novelty now, but I am confused about what we then define as novel, you know, in, in either camp epistemological emergence or ontological emergence? I want to address that by totally stepping in it. Mm. I'm going to do, I'm going to say something that I think is totally irresponsible and inaccurate (laughs) and anachronistic, but that hopefully gets this lesson across. So let's pretend we are in a big bang universe that was initiated by God or whatever. A first cool. cause type thing where we don't even talk about what happened before it. We don't talk about what made it happen, whatever. But empty universe and then a pop 
and now we've got some stuff. Now this, I assume, is physically ignorant, but I'm going to just try. So in right after at uh, one second after the Big Bang, let's say there's no such thing as solidity in that universe, in that there are no two distinct entities which, were they put on a collision course, would you know, arrive and deflect or something. They wouldn't bounce off. They wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, to knock on anything. I mean, it's just <laughs> plasmas or whatever, and there's just nothing like that. But allow that universe to evolve for X amount of time, and shit happens. Hand wave, hand wave. And <laughs> later, a year later, now have evolved, developed, or whatever, some chunks of stuff, such as we would be able to, you know, analogous to rocks or whatever, that as they float around, if they come into close space-time coordinates or whatever, they bounce off and, you know, they, there's some kind of deflection and there's a, they have a causal influence on each other in that their trajectories are altered by them coming into, quote-unquote, contact Right. There's so heat now maybe, and light. So we've now solidity has emerged in that universe. At minute X, there was no, there were no interactions that occurred that matched that description of the evolution of the state of the system. And then at a later time, in order to describe the way that the state of the system evolves, we have to take into account things bouncing off each other so that, you know, and let's call that solidity. So now solidity emerged in that universe. I don't know if that helped at all. Well, no, it helps. I just don't, I just, I, um, I just have to like, and, and I, I wasn't even supposed to be defining emergence there. I was supposed to get into novelty or whatever. So at one point there were the <laughs> first two rocks that bounced off each other. Right. Right. Or the first one that, counterfactually had the property such that if it were to be on a collision course, it would be, you know, whatever. As soon as that happened, that would be the novel emergence of a new property solidity. Blah. blah. Yeah. No, I, I, that's totally, that's totally fine. I just, I'm, 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 I don't know how to describe it other than being like, um, an asshole <laughs> is, you know, I I want to say, and I shouldn't because I want to just keep having this conversation, and I'm and I'm not, I'm not I don't know, I'm being too much of an epistemological emergentist. I don't know, but I want to be like, so says English, you know, 2018, and all that kind of crap. Like, so says the story we have about these things, and what are those stories made up of? I don't know if I'm I'm just being an idiot here. I guess I must be, but so that's kind of, I, I keep kind of going back to like the, it, is it us or is it the universe? You know, is the universe this nice story we tell because we're clever and we come up with ways to kind of, um, you know, uh, play with it or whatever. And then from there we can draw certain kinds of conclusions. And of course we love to tell stories around the campfire about the gods and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we tell these big stories about, the Big Bang, and then the really smart people come along and they start, you know, kind of putting 
a framework around these things that's a little more abstract. And they start talking about reductionism and emergence and stuff like that. And I'm just like, ah, you know, how much of this is us and how much of this is something, you know, the ontological emergentist, I kind of have in some ways a lot of sympathy for because to me it's like, well, that's, you're really buying in. You're just like, okay, <laughs> to keep doing uh, poker or whatever analogies, which I'm not very good at playing poker but you know it's like the whole all my chips are in you know like let's do this like let's just go all the way and try and like understand how it's possible you know and all that but there's just this goddamn stupid epistemological devil on my shoulder just being like about like us and what we do and how we do it um and I kind of want to get away. I want to back away from that because I want to have a good conversation. I don't want to have one of those ones where I'm like shutting it down because I think that's not addressed by any of these points or something. Or I'm not, I don't know. I, I kind of, I, I, I have this negative feeling about what I'm saying too. So that's interesting. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I tend that way in many conversations to pay attention to the cultural relativism linguistic relativism you know all these things we're saying well we're saying in english and ah, so now we got to go talk to chomsky instead of um broad but for the purpose of certain conversations we kind of have to skip over that right yeah, no, we do, and I, I do have a, a way to kind of yeah. um, tie it in a bow maybe later. Maybe. So let's keep going. Uh, let's leave Chomsky on, um, uh, what's it, democracy now? You know, let him sit in that chair to talk about politics and things that you don't know about that are happening, and oh, shame on you, and... Let's go to Broad and Campbell and others. Everything of that form, and I don't know which one was first, but whether it's whoever has that enlightenment now or democracy now or whatever, to me it's all just (laughs) serenity now! uh, I don't know which one was first, but that's all I can hear. I just remember, yeah, fucking Seinfeld too. Seinfeld. Jesus, good stuff. So this philosopher Robert Van Gulick has a yeah. another useful, in my opinion, rubric that we can put on this. He has three grades of emergence called, one, specific value emergence. And that is like aggregation. Um, what's his example? Say a bronze statue has a mass of one kilogram, whereas none of its parts, as though they all have mass, none of them have the same mass, right? So those are basic, like you just add it up. Every part has some, but none have the precise value. So that's his baseline. You know, whether we would even argue whether that even ought to be called emergence at all. So then you can move up from that to what he calls modest kind emergence. The whole has features that are different in kind from those of its parts, like color, right? A piece of cloth may be purple in hue, though none of its molecules would, it does it even apply or make sense to say are purple. 
And then you have number three, radical kind emergence. And of course, I like this one immediately. <laughs> the emergent property is different in kind from those had by its parts and is of a kind whose nature and existence is not necessitated by features of its parts, their mode of combination, or the law-like regularities governing the features. So that one goes beyond, and I think he phrased it this way for this purpose, goes beyond what they call supervenance, which you mentioned earlier, and one cannot, unfortunately, have a discussion of emergence without talking about because it had a <laughs> heyday, and I don't know if it's still going on, but um, philosophers became very enamored with this term supervenance for a while. Uh, the technical definition of supervenance is as follows. Feel free to zone out. If property M <laughs> emerges from properties of the set N1 through Nn, then M supervenes on that set. Uh, the systems are alike in respect of basal conditions. N1 through Nn must all be alike in respect of their emergent properties. The point, I think it's just a point about necessity, and again, as people will get used to hearing these things from me, I refuse to talk about necessity. I don't think anyone is ever warranted to do so. But supervenance is the claim that any and every time you bring the basal conditions about, where every time you take atoms of this type and arrange them in this order, then you will see the illusion or appearance of a higher level property well i guess i'm cheating again and bringing in my own to me that would make it illusory if that if there was some law about it that every time you have atoms arranged thusly you see traffic jam wetness what it, you know whatever these higher level properties are supposed to be then those higher level ones supervene on the basal conditions well, hold on. But I think the whole thing with supervenience is that it's it would be willing to admit that there is some higher level properties, but that there is like a that the lower levels are not dependent in any way upon higher level properties at all. So the higher levels always just spring forth from the lower levels. If you were to say, "Okay, yeah, sure, there's wetness or whatever." But wetness is because there's a certain temperature and pressure with high, you know, uh, you know, H2O and all that kind of stuff. With you have a certain number of them, and that's where you get water and what well, wetness. That would that would that brings in this whole fucking brain shit again. But like you know, you get water, whatever the properties of water are. It's a liquid or something, and that of course also brings in the goddamn brain shit. Anyway, but doesn't matter. Um, oh, well, fuck. what it brings anyway, in, I'm like help. <laughs> I, this isn't going to help, but this is going to, in my opinion, make matters worse. But what it also brings in is the colossal problem of the ceteris paribus. You know, like it, even as you were telling it, you were like, well, yeah, you'll see witness if it's the right temperature yeah. and pressure and blah, blah. Things, And yeah. you've got this huge <laughs> indefinite disjunction of, well, you'll see it unless... And yeah. that's another problem with necessity claims and supervenience, in my opinion. Uh, 
But anyway, I think that's they're just trying to so any supervenous claims. They're trying to make some kind of dependency claim. I feel like you know that these things depend upon these other ones at a lower level, and that's all they're trying to do is just you know keep it discreet, right? They're trying to remain discreet at the different levels, so that you don't lose. Uh, you know, it's so it's not additive in the same way. Like, for instance, um, you <clears throat> if you were to take white and red paint and mix them together, you sud- suddenly lose that, oh, I can see the red and the white. You get just pink. But if you just talk about it at the molecular level, you can be like, oh, well, we can still count the molecules and we can still have discrete molecular descriptions of the pink paint or whatever. Um, and I think that's, I, I always thought that's what, Supervenience was attempting to do is have their cake and eat it too, kind of thing. You know, have it both ways. Are there any? Am I wrong? I think so. Are there oh, any okay. versions <laughs> of this emergence talk that don't include the dependency relation? I, I definitely yes, supervenience has dependency, but I don't think that's all they're trying to say because I think everybody in this whole realm of discourse is a dependency person. Because in order to emerge in the first place, you're saying that, yeah, we all agree that there are these lower-level entities. The dispute would be about the putative higher-level ones. Of course they depend on the atoms. I don't... I'm not saying... And and I'm not... I may still be very wrong about supervenience. Um, but what I was attempting to say was that dependency goes in only one direction or something like that. And well, that you still get these levels. Goes in only one direction. You know. In fact, uh, let's see, what's the... I was saying causal influence goes in only one direction. In fact, that's one yeah, of... Yeah, sure. Um, there's this that guy, Jay Wan Kim, who does a bunch of... Thing. Is one of the popular contemporary... Um, supervenience people and he has two famous critiques of um, em- of Gulick's radical kind emergence or the, you know, the kinds that I care about and they one of them is just the um, overdetermination argument that you know He writes in such a technical way. That's who I was reading before with the M's and N's or whatever. It's very difficult to read out loud on a podcast, so I can't really give you his <laughs> version. But when I do it in my own head, I was kind of thinking about, again, with the wetness thing. Let's say we've got a can of beer over here and a paper towel about a foot to its right. And then as we are wildly gesticulating about emergence talk in this hot and heavy podcast we knock over the beer and some runs across the table and begins to saturate the paper towel so with the supervenience thing yeah okay well wetness is this higher level property in quotes that manifests every time you have well, yeah, I should do water instead of beer because its chemical composition is quicker to say. You got H2O molecules, whatever, you know, <laughs> in suitable arrangement. You're going to have this wetness. And then 
it runs across the table and then you notice the, a change of color and a saturation increase on this paper product. Kim is saying the emergentist has too much cause going on because if they want to say that wetness is something over and above patterns of behavior in H2O molecules, then when the question is, why is the paper towel wet? You have two answers. Well, one is, on L1, it got wet, or whatever, and then on L0, it's uh, X number of H2O molecules got soaked up by it, or whatever. So, you know, so now the, it's over-determined. Two things caused it to get wet. I think is the basics of one of his arguments against emergence. And I think that argument works, but it only works if you respect supervenience, which you shouldn't. Huh. Uh, okay. But we're getting too far in the weeds, probably, for, for dawdling. No, no, I'm just trying to see why I don't understand supervenience. Because, <laughs> like... Uh... Yes, supervenience, no downward causation. Yes, supervenience, dependence on presence of basal conditions. So you're not wrong about either of those. I just think that you think that's all it is, and I think it's a little bit more than that, and the more is the assertion of necessity. That every time you have basal condition set oh, X, you will have all and only the identical L1 property manifest. They're not oh, well, see, genuinely I, I... novel. They are lawfully created or whatever. I don't even know if they would talk that hmm. way, if they would say it was created and manifest, whatever. But it's... Well... Not important. Oh, but okay, so I don't think it's important. I think it's a big mistake. Well, my my thinking is I I I never really thought about necessity with supervenience, so maybe that's my uh, biggest issue. All I needed was that it was just, you know, level one tracks level two, or I mean level zero or whatever. Um. And that there's no relationship that, you know, level zero doesn't have to be like, oh, I got to now track level one because it's doing something or whatever. There's a one directional relationship. Yeah, right? that's yeah. what I mean. Okay. You know, it's just it's sing it's just bottom up, you know, the whole bottom way. up. Um, and I'm just saying for my taste, that ain't emergence. If that's what you can give me, then I'm I would just stay being a reductionist. I don't think that counts. And I don't think epistemological emergence is even relevant. You know, but this is a, a metaphysical question. Are there or are there not in our world, or to back up to your earlier question, ought we think there are genuine novel properties at any level above the fundament? that have causal influence? To me, that's the question. So if your answer includes, well, 
there are things on a level above the fundament that I could not predict from my knowledge of the atoms. I think it's a non sequitur. I wasn't asking you, buddy, about what you could predict. I want to know whether or not I should believe in novel causal powers in the universe. Well, I mean, that's... <clears throat> this is where my... This is where I'm like, uh, where's Matt to say it's trivial? Um, I think the way when we study ourselves and the way we talk and the way we do things is the example to say, well, yeah, <clears throat> because we're the ones. So I don't know if I'm saying epistemological emergence or not. I would think to say that our... Uh, Cognitive patterns, or whatever the right phrase is, are justification enough to say that it's not just atoms. Because, after all, we're the motherfuckers who came up with atoms. Atoms didn't come up with atoms. We did. You know, or whatever particles and fundamentals are there. Like, we're the ones who did that. We study those things, and then we go turn and we look in the mirror and we study ourselves. And we, we, we put people in rooms and we try and understand how they arrange words into phrases and things to make sense of the world. And we also do it with telescopes and microscopes and we uh, collect animals in the field. We do all these things, but to me, it just seems like that's a huge one that you can't just skip by. Like if anything, to me, that seems like a very important thing that justifies any kind of emergent pattern, because otherwise you're now telling a story about atoms, which are all that it is that's there. So somehow the atoms managed to be able to tell a story about themselves. Like, I, uh, what the fuck? You know, like, where are we going there? Like, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Because um, we don't talk about them at that level. We don't even describe them at that level. But somehow we're supposed to just take a leap of faith and say, oh, well, then, because we have some understanding of particles, we therefore must have, you know that those laws or ways that things interact at that level are having, you know, whatever it is that's happening at another level that we're describing doesn't make any, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's just still the particles in the way that we talk and write about the particles or something. So there's something there that's amiss to me. Like, uh, what, what, why can't that be enough? Everything that we're talking about on both sides of the equation, the atoms and the ducks and the cups of water and the traffic jams, all of these things, human constructions. That's fine. Agreed. If that's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with that. But, I have to try to figure out how to word what I think the distinction is. And maybe this will be good and we'll find out that I have a mistaken, uh, that I'm messing this up. If I want to ask a question about our ultimate, like our theory of everything, our metaphysical picture of what's going on around here, slash the world, slash reality, whatever your favorite phrase is, 
ought that theory of everything include levels? I guess is one way to word it, because the reductionist is saying, nope, it only includes level, there's no plural, there's just one kind of stuff, one mode of investigating the the behavior of that stuff. I don't... So if that question makes sense, in our theory of everything, ought there be levels? I don't think that the answer to that question ought include considerations about our ability to reason from a level that we've developed to another level that we've posited and are trying to fit. I don't think I'm saying this super clear. Did that help in any way? There are things that you said that I have things to say uh, too, but then you continued on and I got lost. So, all right, we're starting from agreeing that everything that we're talking about is human constructions, ob- you know, quote-unquote, obviously, in print. In so far as our stories and language are concerned, which is the only way we communicate about these things. So then how about when I say, all right, we're going to try to make a metaphysics, a theory of everything, our story about the universe. Is that all sure. a thing yeah. you can deal with? Yep. So then when we're engaging in that, we have the question, is there more than one level in our metaphysics? Does that make sense as a question? That makes sense, yes. Okay, so then my point regarding what you were saying is, now we're going to try to answer that question. During the course of answering it, should we consider... Uh, our ability to reason from one level that we made up to another level that we made up, and whether or not we can succeed at reducing level X to level X minus 1. That's a thing we could do, but to me that is irrelevant to the question that I just laid out. Like, regardless of whether or not there's uh, the human lineage and the natural spoken language and written language and stuff like that. Are there levels? Yeah. I mean, that's the question. (laughs) The emergentist says yes, the reductionist says no. And then what you and I are currently disputing, I think, is when attempting to resolve the emergentist-reductionist dispute, should we include in that resolution facts about consilience what are, you know facts about human ability to reduce any given level to any given sublevel and to me that's irrelevant whether we ask it in terms of can science 2018 earth do it or do we think there are reasons to suspect that anyone ever could, you know, the ideal inquirer could, which I right. think is just a bad game to play in the first place. But Well, now I've forgotten what I was going to say about it. When you mentioned something was irrelevant, and I was like, and then I don't remember now. But 
Do you remember what you said you thought was irrelevant? Whether or not anyone can read can theoretically symbolically reduce level x to level x minus n any higher level to a lower level whether or not that can be done to me has nothing to do with the question ought we include levels in our metaphysics this is a tough one i didn't realize this was going to be this difficult because i'm like uh, fuck this is what are we going to talk about um, well, I, and I wonder if this, this is so part of the explanation from my at-the-top complaint that this topic doesn't get enough airtime, is that it pretty swiftly becomes complicated. Um, I guess I, I'm having a difficult time compartmentalizing. You seem to be having an easier time doing that. Um. I often think if we are to have, and I am not the deep philosopher that that you are, because I haven't, I don't have an education in all these things, and I haven't been thinking about it ever since. You know, really, I've gone into philosophy philosophy much more deeply as a result of of meeting you. So you have all those years ahead of time, and you've often also talked about, you know, your own personal history and. In, in thinking about these things. Uh, but from, I don't know, for my part, I, I just think, uh, I don't know how you can get away with not including, you know, the human construction component in our metaphysics of whether or not there are levels. Um, it's, no, I mean, if there I is thought it was one, included. That uh, was the first thing. I said, and we agreed to. I feel I included it Wait. up front. Okay. You included So what's irrelevant then to the question of whether or not there are levels, whether or not we are, the levels are human constructions? What I think is irrelevant is whether any theorist is capable of reducing one human-invented level to another human-invented level. I'm agreeing that it's all just construction, social construction or whatever. But that okay, becomes I think a I understand sub- what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Why would that be irrelevant? <laughs> because that That's is the next a question. fact about the inquirer, not the... I was trying to make a question about the world slash our best model of the world... So why would I care about facts about what inquirers are capable or incapable of doing? I guess I was thinking it had to a lot to do with the the idea that the inquirers are the ones at least I mean I'm not thinking about in the abstract I'm thinking you know this is like homegrown you know maybe there are aliens or robots out there that can do this kind of stuff and get to it better or whatever. And so we have a, a, a plural range of <coughs> inquirers or whatever that use their own tools and techniques to get at these types of 
ideas. But um, my worry is that, you know, you, you just starting with us and not even thinking about who else could do it or going abstract, um, it seems to me like it, it's, it's nothing but it, it's the only relevant thing. Like it's it comes down to, uh, you know, if there is a level, it is not atoms or particles or whatever. It is, you know, humans talking, and writing and communicating. That's the level, and then we, we create those other levels from there, based on how we are able to interpret and collect information about the world. Um. But there's always going to be the world coming through that filter. And so it's going to come down to, well, how do you do things? You know, and if we're always just doing things in a very particular way, um, then that's going to be the way that the world, that that will be an influence on our metaphysics, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm way off. But that's kind of where I was. That's where I was coming from. You now have the job to shake me out of it, so we can keep going. Hmm. I don't know if I'm capable, or I don't know if that's how we should proceed. I begin what? to suspect okay. there's a miscommunication happening. Oh. Okay. I don't know if there's well, I'm, a I'm... disagreement or a miscommunication. I don't know. I mean, I'm not like heartfully into the disagreement so i'm more than willing to be completely you know um persuaded in a different direction i'm just at this moment trying to see how to disentickle <laughs> the uh sorry that was a the inside <laughs> joke shit anyway um <laughs> not appropriate i i uh, <laughs> but i'm trying to figure out how to separate them you know Let's so that it can be irrelevant, you know. How do we do that, you know? Because that would be cool. Because I, I right now am obviously ignorant to that process, and I'm also very worried about us not getting on, like getting off track. I didn't realize going into this that I would, I would be this person. I'd be like, ah, it's all just a construction. People hate that guy. I hate that guy. I'm like the fucking dude. Shut up. And like, here I am. I'm like, well, weird. I guess I've had You're an influence on you. Um, no, I think I was just, I was very, I was, I was, I, if anyone was to be influenced, I was, I was most ready for it, you know? Um, like, it was like, I was just there and you just need to open the door. And I was like, oh yeah, that's the door I like. But I'm not saying I'm a radical skeptic either, because I don't know what the, I'm not going to be like. Well, it's all just a brain in a vat or whatever. I want to stick to things that I can actually work with, not with fictions that are fun to, you know, the argument from absurdity or whatever. Sometimes that can be helpful, but it seems most of the time it isn't. It's just, you know, derails the conversation. And maybe that is what I'm doing. Jesus. I don't think so, though. I don't <laughs> think I'm being absurd. I think it's tied to it. I think it's related. I don't think what I'm saying is just me being like, well, let me pluck this little random nugget out of my head and throw it at you, you know. No, I, I want to 
I want to, I want to learn something. I don't, I'm not tied to radical thoughts about anything. I just, I think we should be thoughtful about it. And sometimes when you say things characterizing what other people have said, I'm like, eh, and it's like, you know, the red blink, the red flashing light goes up and I'm like, wait a minute. That's a good anyway. thing. Um, yes. Yeah, there will be, if I have anything to say about it, future episodes that deal with the skeptical arguments from absurdity. Um, yeah. And I, I think we should do. come back, maybe, if we feel the desire, to this issue after we get to the right. downward causation issue and an article that we have both read and enjoyed oh, regarding yeah. that. And then we'll revisit this and see if epistemological emergence has any bearing on the Campbell, I think. Okay. So, I wasn't able yet to persuade you that epistemological emergence is not the way to go. We need to have ontological emergence if it's going to be interesting. And ontological emergence is established in part by downward causation. What the hell is that? Right? Yeah. What? Downward yes. causation? So, <laughs> now we get to be multimedia or whatever, right? We get to call out. We'll see if we can pull off our technological... Let's do it again. Um, this is good. Yeah. We're going to let some other folks come in. Some big, heavy hitters here. Uh, we anyway, this was addressed in a recent podcast by in, in an interview between, or I don't know if it was a forum or what it was. They were in a theater or something. Between they're at, they're at the Schnitzer in Portland, Oregon. The podcaster Sam Harris and the physicist Sean Carroll, when they <laughs> not on purpose but ended up talking about this real quick. So I'll see if it works. To play it. Descriptions, but they better be compatible with the lower levels. And in particular, I'm not a fan of what even some of my scientific colleagues call downward causation. Right. The idea that somehow the shape of a macroscopic thing or the purpose of a macroscopic thing can feed back and change the behavior at the microscopic level in a way that you wouldn't have known about if you were just right. doing the microscopic level. I think that it really is reductionistic in, in that sense. In principle, we can build up. Now, in practice, when we do biology or chemistry or psychology, uh, there is a non-reductionist element in the sense that as a practical matter, the way to learn new things about biology is not to think about particle physics, right? right. We can discover regularities at the higher levels that are uh, we don't need to know about what's going on at the lower levels to discover them, but they still better be compatible with them. Right. So let's revisit that notion of, of downward causation because I, it has never made sense to me either. It's, so the, the idea is that you have a, emergent properties like minds and consciousness and or just, just the macro level, as you say, shape of objects, right? right? So you have, you have collections of atoms that at some higher level have, you know, very, even, even temperature is an emergent property. I mean, one atom mm -hmm. doesn't have a temperature, but you get collections uh, together and, and then their motion is described as temperature. But this notion that a higher level phenomenon can then 
by virtue of its existing at the higher level, come down and and have causal properties with respect to the lower level. How is it that people are endorsing <laughs> that idea? Because what we have scientists who are yeah. talking in those terms. You've come to the wrong place because yeah. I, you know, I. It's one of those ideas I've tried to understand. There's a lot of smart people who believe this is a very important part of how we describe nature. I've never even been able to understand what they're saying, really, I think. You know, well enough, you would like to understand something well enough to be able to give a good defense of it yourself before you said it, uh, it was wrong, which I don't, I don't think I can do. But right. the example on the level of... Well, we're a couple of smart people, maybe. We'll see if we can help Sean Carroll understand what what other people think downward causation is. Maybe. Right. Maybe. Um, <clears throat> did you want to? Do you want me to read from uh, Campbell's awesome paper on downward causation, or do you want to? I will read something. And then you can see if I'm saying the same thing you would have said and try to fix it. So, nice. 1974, Donald Campbell, Downward Causation in Hierarchically Organized Biological Systems. I think they attribute this as the coinage, if not the popularization of the term, Downward Causation. And this is one that we've both read and really like and see some value in. So at one point, Campbell has in a numbered list the term downward causation, which makes me suspect that this might be a version of his definition of it. The laws of the higher level selective system determine in part the distribution of the lower level events and substances. So I think that's what Campbell thinks downward causation is. And then he has... Uh, what he calls a concrete biological example. And it runs this way. Yeah. This will all be quotes, but with various ellipses in the middle. Consider the anatomy of the jaws of a worker, termite, or ant. The hinge surfaces and the muscle attachments agree with Archimedes' laws of levers, that is, with macro-mechanics. They are optimally designed to apply the maximum force at a useful distance from the hinge. The laws of levers are one part of the complex selective system operating at the level of whole organisms. We need, claims Campbell, the law of levers and organism level selection to explain the particular distribution of proteins found in the jaw, and hence the DNA templates guarding, guiding their production. And then he goes further. That one got us from proteins and DNA to organisms, and then he's going to take us even farther to entire societies when he says, If we now consider the jaw of a soldier termite or ant, the soldier jaws are so specialized for piercing enemy ants and termites, huge multi-pronged antler pincers, that the soldier cannot feed itself and has to be fed by workers. The soldier's jaws and the distribution of protein therein require for their explanation certain laws of sociology, 
centering around division of labor, social organization. Yeah. Does that get at it? Yes, that gets at it really well. So in uh, in that way, we have, you know, some kind of macro mechanics operating. You've got natural selection operating and also a, you know, sociological process or mechanism like division of labor uh, operating on, at this level in order to get the antler pincers of the soldier ant or termite, as he, as he says. To me, this is the classic example of how do you influence the distribution of proteins and the smaller particulates in any system? Uh, and, in, you know, how do you influence that? And in this case, you can have, uh, you know, various factors involved, one of them being, you know, the social organization of ants in a colony. And in order to have defense, there's a certain sacrifice that's implied, you know, where you're going to have these huge antler pincers, but you can't eat. So someone's got to feed you. All I mean, that's just, you know, great, you know. And so I don't know exactly the process upon which you eventually get something like antler pincers and who decides, you know, how to feed the organism that has that. It's crazy to think of how that comes about. But nonetheless, you have that, you know, pattern. And, uh, yeah, that to me is the, uh, to me, the key example. I don't care so much for his definition as the example, you know, of a circumstance where you have influence on some lower level from a higher level. Sean Carroll and Sam Harris. The lower level, in this case, being proteins. Like most of the evening we've been talking about atoms or whatever. So now proteins right. are playing that role. These are not necessarily the bottom, but you know they're a lower level. And then um, what? So uh, group selection or something being a possible higher level or what? I mean, a higher level is just the phenotype of a given ant, right? That's bigger than a protein. And then larger than that right. is the society of which that ant is a member, etc. But even still, in any, you, can, you can extrapolate, or not extrapolate, but you can carry this over to like any discrete molecular structures in organisms that are um, part of the organs and you know, various um, capacities that they possess. Um, and to me, that seems to be, and I don't know, maybe someone could point out why that's not enough to explain a way in which we have downward causation as it is understood as there being a top-down influence on the lower level. Um, but that's that's good enough for me. I was, I remember when I read that the first time, I thought I was kind of blown away because I too was like, I don't understand this stuff. And then when I read that, I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> it's just like, all right, yep, sure. That makes sense to me, you know? Um, so I don't know yet. We'll find out. If the sense that it makes to you, to what extent it matches up with what this does when I read it. So I think about 
it in these terms. Select a space-time region. Uh, and let's just, for our purposes, describe that region as something that most of us would call an anthill or whatever if we were around and 10 yards of lawn around it, whatever, you know. So we grab out this chunk of universe. And then some of our questions as metaphysicians would be to attempt to provide a description of and reason for the distribution of substance within that region. So if we're going to talk on, let's say, two levels. One, the level of description we call proteins. Two, the level of description we call ants. And so we want to say, all right, metaphysics guy, tell me your story, your why story, as to explain the distribution of proteins in our region. Is that, is that a sensible question? Is any of this making sense yeah. before I keep going? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Part of the distribution of those proteins we could describe as the pincers of the warrior ants or whatever they are. What do you want me to call them? Soldier ants the or soldier whatever. Ants. It doesn't yeah. matter. So we've got that protein. We zoom in on the head of one ant and we look at these this shape of these pincers and we're like okay well these proteins are sitting here in this shape within our region how did they get there why are they like that explain that shape to me and the reductionist is going to have to do so in terms of proteins and the laws governing proteins, period. Right? Or if we want to go, you know, if we say ants are on level five and proteins are on level two or whatever, but atoms are level whatever, zero, yeah. maybe, well, all right, explain it in terms of atoms or, you know, whatever you want it, wherever right. your reductionist leanings take you. And I th my interpretation of Campbell's claim is that cannot be done. I have a better, a good slash better explanation of that distribution of proteins in our region, but it includes reference to ants and even to the entire colony of ants and their right. ancestors and the and a lineage and what you know you've got to have all of these right. you've got to have evolutionary history and you've got to have all this stuff in order to explain that distribution and mine is better than yours. Is that, I mean, that's the lesson I'm taking out of it. That's the lesson I took out of it. Okay. Yeah. That's, and I think it's a really good one, and I wish everybody knew it, <laughs> unless you have changed your mind since, and we'd like to describe why you think it's different, or why you don't think it's as powerful as it is. But I still am, like, I think it was just the whole, the distribution of protein therein, as he talks. I'm thinking, like, Ah, that was to me a big like eye opener. I guess I, I remember thinking, "Yeah, duh." And I wonder sometimes if he came up with that all on his own. 
Because if he did, I'm thinking like that's some serious contribution right there. But again, I, I don't know. I it, it's weird. Like you were saying about this topic, it, people don't tend to want to get into it or something like that. I don't know because it gets complicated or weird or something. Sometimes I just if if this is as good as I think it is, then it just comes down to like who has access, you know, to this information. <laughs> and uh, if you don't have access to it, you might scratch your head and. <clears throat> the thing I don't like about uh, like just some of the emergence stuff ta- up to this point, the reductionism, supervenience, emergence, is that it doesn't, none of it feels right to me, you know? And I know that's, we're supposed to be intellectual thinking people here. But the, 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 the thrust of this to me is so much more like satisfying and an explanation of how you get soldier antler pincers or whatever than just to be like, well, you know, it's all just the particles or whatever and the laws that govern them. It, it's so much more satisfying, at least. And I don't know if that's good or bad or what, but I, I will say that I'm way more persuaded by that but, than by anything else that we've talked about until this point. Um, I mean, yeah. uh, and I knew ahead of time going into this, but still... <laughs> You're like, don't tell your so, biases. I'm like, eh, too late. Huh. Um, just to solidify and drill this in, if it isn't already obvious, as to how this relates to downward causation. That means mm-hmm. from a level with a higher index to a level with a lower index. The right. zero level being whatever the fundamental substance of the world is, which tonight we've been using the term atoms to refer to. It is still a big claim. Like, I don't think we should skip over how contentious and difficult and, like, what, how big it is to say that facts about an ant colony had causal influence over the space-time trajectory of an atom, or what, you know, that's, that it pushed it around, you know, Hofstetter's question of who pushes whom around, or whatever. It, that's, mm-hmm. to me, that's still, you know, a big challenge, and I don't, I like the Campbell example a lot, I'm not 100% persuaded by it, I still think there's, I mean, I don't know, but it's a, it's a good example and a good way to frame a discussion, I think. But in order for downward causation to be established, we have to, to me, we have to do that. You have to literally be saying there's some kind of macro, social, historical, evolutionary fact that had an effect on the location of an atom or a protein, like this physical object. And that would break a lot of rules, right? Would it not even break what they call the causal closure of the physical, that anything that happens in physics to an entity of physics, if we're just, again, you know, it's also complicated, but let's just say particle. I know some people say, <laughs> there's no particles, whatever. Uh, that anything that moves a particle has to itself be physical. 
this, I think, would break that rule, right? And physics would no longer be causally closed. And a lot of people care a lot about that. Well, why would it be... Um, why would... How is the social stuff not physical, I guess? It's physical in the sense that it depends on... Again, you know, that's what I was saying earlier, that I think everybody is a dependence relation acceptor. There would be no ant colony if there were no atoms. Any of the putatively higher level things depend upon the lower level. I think we're all buying that. It's just that in order to even countenance the existence of ants or ant colonies, you have to be, in my opinion, an ontological emergentist. Reductionism entails mirological nihilism. If reductionist claims are correct, then the right answer is to say nothing but atoms exists. Everything else is an instrumentalist fiction, and they might pragmatically help you explain things, but they don't exist. And you don't exist. Nothing exists. It's just atoms. Fuck you. I think if reductionism is right, you have to say that. And reductionism might be right. And in order for it to be wrong, we have to be able to establish Campbell-style, genuine downward causation. And that's hard. I think we can. I like it. But, like, I don't want to be glib about it. I mean, I, I guess I have a I have a difficult time saying that that's hard because that's like everything in evolution. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. Uh-oh. Now we, it's like, what is it? It's just going to be physicists against biologists now? Is that the, the thing? Because, I, I mean, I, that sounds to me like everything in, yeah. in biology, you know? So what? You know, because I, you know, I... I don't know. I mean, because obviously it's not fair to say physicists against biologists because some physicists study galaxies. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, you know I, I won't put them all into the particle physicists camp, you know. But I guess then is that what it is? It's particle You're physicists right. The physicists might be wrong too or whatever. Just it's just the... Biology. Uh, yeah, uh, to purposefully, um, like, use a word wrong. The fundamentalists. Meaning, yeah. whoever studies that which is the fundamental <laughs> substance. Uh, uh, yeah, that's good. That, and the that'll, closest that'll that, really make some people upset. <laughs> our closest approximation to fundamentalists are physicists. Yeah. But, right. all right. But yes, the way that I run all this stuff from my perspective is, if reductionism were true, biology would be 100% false. Everything that it said, like every, every entity it talks about and every um, mechanism it uses or whatever, it would all just be yeah, fictional. See, okay, so this, t this goes back to my original issue then because I don't see why that's a big deal. To me, I think, well, then this is an... It's not an open and short case. But I don't think there's as much uh, support then for the particle physics fundamentalist view because, after all, 
you know, the thing that they might say is an illusion is still the thing upon which we, it's where we begin. We begin with the organism and the capacities that that organism possesses. If we don't have that, then I'm not sure how we start there and not at particles or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do we begin with the organism telling stories, the, the human organism, and all its capacities through its nervous system? Even that's a story, I get it. But still, you know, how do we get that, you know, interacting, you and me, uh, you know, uh, ancestors 100,000 years ago, whatever, and then... We f- we eventually get to a point where we can say, oh well, <laughs> you know, we f- we found out that it's just that seems like a huge leap to me because then you are required to come up with another way to explain the illusion. That's a challenge if you only have particles. Um, whereas it seems a much easier job to say we have this, you know, organism we've dissected people when we went to war and we chopped their heads off and we you know like we did all these things or or we eat animals and we tear them apart you know and we have their ribs and we're chewing on it and you know we have uh more information that way and that's kind of the point that i think we begin at it just seems a lot easier and then now what we learn about you know ecological networks and how you know, you don't even have to have a social organization to influence biological systems. As far as I would be concerned, all the organisms in an ecosystem are influencing each other and their, you know, their traits and their pincers and their what. Like so, it's like now, much. You know, so that's the whole thing, and that's where we come from, at least as far as we can tell, because we, you know. You know, we, we're still here. You still fly in an airplane to go to Africa and you go under the bush and the lion chases you and you're like, oh, shit. You know, that still can can happen. But like, you know, we don't. How do we get convinced that, oh, well, atoms, particles, whatever. That's the real story. Um, how do we you know, that seems to me the harder, the bigger leap. This reminds me of another future episode. Mmm, sweet. (laughs) When I will be attempting to argue that consciousness doesn't exist and people have a very hard time understanding what that could even mean. I think people have a hard time understanding and appreciating a consistent, genuine, reductionist picture. Because I think that from that perspective, the correct answer to most or all of the questions you just asked would be, those are ill-formed questions. I don't have to answer them because all of the things that you used as subjects in your sentences don't exist. So if your question is, how do we get from these apes who have English language developing all this stuff back to the atoms? Well, there are no apes. There is no such thing as English. All there is is atoms, following the laws of physics. And, you know, the end. Like, so I think that the reductionist 
wouldn't even feel a burden to respond to those questions, other than to say, the ontology on which those questions is predicated is false. And so, they're bad questions. Um. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, uh, why are you so um why do you struggle with that position because i can't i i'm not sure how you cannot see that that is so patently absurd that that it uh, wouldn't uh, yeah, include okay. anything but some conclusion that was drawn from you know like that it's like a it's like a position that that says fuck you to its own history or something like that like it's a it's like a current events and that's all it cares about you know you don't you only care about the current events in the news and that's all that exists it's such a like why are you so like oh my god this position i don't know what to do like that's bizarre to me okay yeah that's a good good question it's also ah. bizarre to me that i just saw you drink out of a pepsi and i'm like where's the beer Answer one or the other. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and this could be another one of those places where you're pointing out a place where my personal history has led me astray. I know very little about math and not much more about physics. Nevertheless, those domains have done a good job of uh, public relations or something because they've <laughs> reached out to this kind of like pseudo postmodern uh, super skeptic whatever I am like this philosopher philosophy guy and convinced me that not that like, I can't defend this claim, but this is a claim that they make and they've convinced me of. Uh, that physics, science slash physics is the best strategy, set of tools, model, whatever you want to call it, that we have so far. Um, you know, the way they usually reference it now is... Quantum physics and general relativity, though we haven't figured out how to time together yet, these are the two most successful and explanatory models that humanity has developed. I can't defend that, but other people have persuaded me of it. But even the people who have persuaded me of it don't seem to properly address what I think the entailments of accepting that are. Um, it's kind of like an... So in philosophy of science, they have this that argument they call the pessimistic meta-induction, where the historians of science talk about, well, you know, you shouldn't trust it too much because science has changed its mind a lot of times. So if science 1918 was wrong about a lot of stuff, science 2018 is probably wrong about a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think yeah. this is kind of an optimistic meta-induction thing. That since science slash physics has been ascendant, dominant, effective, persuasive, 
for hundreds of years, at least 100, 150, whatever, and debatable how much further back you want to go, um, I think it deserves a lot of respect. That's what has given us technology and, you know, uh, it's pragmatically useful and it's argumentatively persuasive and it's got a lot of virtues. And as I mentioned earlier, most people, including me, value methodological reductionism even though I still lean towards being an emergentist, I think if we can reduce a higher level to a lower level, we would be better off to do so. And again, I, I went through that list of virtues earlier, and it could be done better. Um, but you get you know more certainty, better predictive success, better experimental replication, you know all these things that we think are good. Uh, it's more parsimonious. And I like Occam's razor, you know. So if we can chop off all of psychology or something and reduce it to neuroscience, fucking great, do it. If we can chop off biology and reduce it to chemistry, great, do it. If we can go all the way down to the fundamentalists, I think we should. Uh, ontologically or methodologically? I, I got lost there. If we can methodologically do it, then we should do it. If we do do it, then our ontological position respects only oh. the fundament. And then, so, right. yeah. That, that I understand. <clears throat> um, I don't know. Uh, this, I think, is one of those... Uh, drunk on success kind of problems because I think that um, physics has resolved a number of interesting problems and, and, you know, asked a lot of answerable questions um, and then grown, uh, you know, frameworks from there. And I also think the the thing about physics that's so great and successful is that um, at least the history of it, there's been it's as much a history of how to isolate and control, you know, various factors, you know, in systems, so that you can kind of try and you know witness the behaviors of different parts of the systems. You can have your almost your caritas, you know, caterus paribus kind of arrangements um, in biological systems and in I guess you could also say chemistry systems or chemical systems you, you don't always get that you know and so it becomes much more difficult to isolate and to control all these different various factors now one tempting thing I think that happens and this is the drunk off success thing is that you get you know you have a more um, a, a simpler system to work on and you have success and then you kind of you know hit your ceiling on the way up or whatever hit your head on the ceiling on the way up or whatever 
and go, well, if we have just these systems that we can control and we can kind of um, examine in great detail and we can predict and work on, then, you know, all these other things are just a simple matter of adding more parts and they're just all moving. And if we could do this ad infinitum, we would have a good understanding of how everything works. But I don't know if that is at all like a safe assumption uh, since there are these various kinds of behaviors that people weren't able to predict using, you know, math and, you know, chemistry and, you know, large scale systems. And so one of those things would be like chaos, right? That was something that we've come on, come upon. And we never could have gotten there just, I think, just simply by, uh, you know, trying to add one new piece onto the next in a system, you know, um, like a nice physical system or whatever. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm very, very skeptical of that. I can understand where you can get there from the, you know, the extreme reductionism. Um, and I certainly, um, uh, don't have a problem of reducing methodologically systems into their components. But at the same time, I do worry if there's anything that's going on that I wouldn't be able to, that I would, that I would miss, you know, essentially is what it comes down to. I'm I guess skeptical that maybe, I, know at all. I mean, the super bumper sticker way, I think of expressing what I'm trying to get at here is just that I interpret place the burden of proof on the emergentist because of the general epistemic values that I employ primarily parsimony or whatever uh, if the fundamentalists want to say yeah I can do it all with just the atoms if they can then they win and the end given my sure value set Okay, so you're agreeing with that. All right. I, I am, but so I don't agree our, so with the, the idea that the burden of proof... Well, hold on. I don't agree with the idea that the burden of proof isn't on them as well. Like, it just doesn't, you know... Like, I don't see how the burden of proof isn't shared by all parties. Well, in the sense of everyone has the same job of explaining the evolution of the state of the world, then yeah... But since the emergentist kind of by definition has a more profligate ontology than the reductionist, they have a greater burden, in my opinion. Because they want to say, yes, atoms exist, but also water exists and traffic jams and ducks and whatever. Everything that you want to add in and say, I think you need to include this on your table of things that exist. You just continue to accrue burdens. <laughs> this is another thing that usually happens in emergence discussions is that I end up arguing kind of for the reductionist or whatever <clears throat> because so many people, in my opinion, don't fully appreciate and respect the force of the reductionist position. Because I still want to be an emergentist. I still think 
there are genuine novel causal properties in the universe. But, in order to even get there, I feel you need to walk through the fire of really considering that there's nothing but atoms. And most people haven't done that right. Well, my thinking is that I don't know. I think I can think, walk through the fire if there's really nothing but some fundamental particles. Um, and to me, that doesn't, there's no, um, what am I trying to say? There's no fulcrum upon which that actually explains anything. Like, it just is a nice thing to say. And you can say everything's just a wash in particles, but like, and then what? You know, whereas the Campbell explanation is like a really nice fulcrum. One of the things that we talk about a lot is um, why, you know, things like why definitions matter. And I think this Campbell example and way of talking about things is, is a, it matters because it helps you um, conceptualize the problem. If, as you have described, reductionist in the extreme, is all you need and no one gets it, I think I know why. It's because it doesn't sound like a very strong position other than to be extreme and to say, well, there's nothing but particles and I don't understand why you don't understand the depth of that or this, this, the, the severity or the strength or whatever of that, you know, um, point. Well, give me an explanation of the universe or something from just the particles. Like give me an explanation of the antler pincers from just the particles or whatever. Campbell's giving you an explanation from certain levels. And I know you're, I'm not, I know, I understand what you just said about feeling like you always end up getting pinned into a position you don't want to be. You're playing like devil's advocate and you don't want to. But I'm just saying, like, give me that explanation. And I don't think they can. And somehow, yet you are saying the burden of proof lies on Campbell. And I'm thinking, no. If anything, I'll say the burden of proof lies on both parties. Campbell's met the proof, the, the, the challenge. But these extreme reductionists, as far as I can tell, unless you're gearing up to hit me hard with a good example, uh, have not. I'm gearing up all right. But all it's right. to bring in a new point that we haven't got to yet, but I think has some force. Good. Is Comes, it like in the same what? weight class as Campbell? Um, that'll be for you to judge. <clears throat> Stephen Pepper, this comes from, if anyone cares. The epistemological challenge. There could never be good reason to posit an emergent property as opposed to complicating our fundamental theory to accommodate unusual macroscopic behavior. So, we've got the new phenomenon that needs explaining. The distribution of proteins in our universe chunk around the anthill. 
wouldn't it always be a legal move, given the two theories, <clears throat> atomism or social evolutionary theory or whatever, atomism or socialism, couldn't the fundamentalist always say it's not a novel causal property that emerged, it was rather a latent fundamental property that had not yet been immersed in an environment to pull out that behavior. Is this making sense yet? Uh, some of the words you've used have tripped me up, but... Maybe it's just the case that any time a protein is surrounded by other proteins in this certain way, then it makes a large pincer. Or, you know, maybe, couldn't it always just be a complication of the fundamental theory? It's still all atoms. It's just the atoms are way more complicated than you realized. They have a whole bunch of latent... They're in there. They've just never been immersed in an environment to bring them out, to make those properties expressed. But it was still just in the atom. It's not that something above it on a higher level reached down and moved the atom. It was still just a causal property of that atom. It's just that the universe finally reached a state that made it move that way. Okay, uh, still not making sense? Analogy. No, I mean, it makes sense. I just have, yeah, go ahead and keep talking. Makes sense, but I don't agree yet. Do the, cause, uh, the um, cellular automata thing. You think that, so you're... Setting up your thing, you think there's four rules in this Conway's game of life and that every black-white flip that you ever witness on your monitor will always be explicable in terms of the four rules that are written on the right-hand side in the column next to your program. But all of a sudden, maybe, there's an anomalous flip that doesn't... You know, a cell turns black that was previously white. And then you look and you're like, okay, that doesn't, none of my four rules that I programmed in here explains that. Anomaly, shit, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to explain this happening. One possible explanation, cellular automata have emergent properties and one was discovered and now there's a new rule that wasn't there before, but now is there and we have to figure out what that rule is. You know, we have to discover the rule. Or, um, you could s suspect my list of rules written on the right-hand side of my screen was incomplete. You know, whoever set up the CSS over there, whatever, they put a blank div over the rule number five, and we just, oh, okay, I figured, that rule was always there, and it was always operating. It's just that over the first one million generations, there was never a setup anywhere in my program that matched Rule 5. Rule 5 is not new. It didn't just emerge or develop. It was always there. It was just hidden from me. And it was never noticed because it never applied. But now, on generation 1,001, 
there was suddenly a cell that matched the, the very complicated conditions of Rule 5. So the question being, was it already there but never activated, or did it get created somewhere in the operating of the program? And Pepper's point is, anytime you think a new Rule 5 somehow got generated by my program, you could always have the alternative hypothesis. Rule 5 was always there, you just didn't know it was there. And it never, there was never a condition that was governed by Rule 5, so you were just ignorant of it. I, that maybe didn't help. Yeah, I mean, that, that didn't help, but... Um, God damn it, I liked it. Fuck. Why does that help you? I don't know how... Um, let's see. How do I explain why it helps me? Or why uh, is it persuasive? I mean... I guess, again, just referencing my epistemic values or something. Because it seem, that seems right to me. Uh, again, as a skeptic, yeah, I have all these fucking preferatory uh, statements on. I never have a high degree of confidence that at any time I possess an exhaustive rule set that explains the evolution of the states of a system. I might be wrong. I think I've got them all, but maybe I'm wrong, and I just haven't... It's never reached a state that this new rule applies. That seems totally possible, plausible to me. So if an anomalous circumstance arises and I have the two alternative hypotheses, a new rule has come into being, or we have finally discovered a pre-existing rule. Those are two alternatives that both explain the current data, and if I do nothing beyond rely on my epistemic values, I would have to prefer the Pepper version, that the rule was always there, I just never saw it. <clears throat> I guess... Um, I, I might be... Maybe I'm just getting caught up in something or... Whatever it is, I I worry about biases and all that kind of stuff. But this feels to me like the same move that you would object to in other situations. Like, um, you know, oh, there's free will, but it's just not what you think it is. You know, we used to say free will is this, and now we're going to say, well, free will is something else now. Like, it just seems like a goalpost move. Like, well, hold on. There's rules out there we just didn't know about, so we get to keep our reductionist view of the things. Because remember, we had said, yeah, there's just particles, and and uh, there's, you know, there's just the, you know, the laws and stuff like that. Oh, new law! You know, like, oh, whew! <laughs> Good thing we've got, we got this social, it looks like social organization, but it's just another law. And they keep doing it like oh, new particle, new law. Well, whoo, 
you know, uh, uh, this particle divides into other particles now. Like, it just keeps moving the goalpost. The thing that seems to me to remain always is this, uh, you know, this ability to split and combine. Um, that seems to be the most common streak in a lot of these uh, characterizations. I don't know. That, that just seems, that's why, I like, it. the one thing I love about the Campbell example is it's like, this thing, like, you know, it just goes boom on the table and you get to go, okay, now we have, it's like the Darwin thing, a theory with which to work, you know? And I don't think that just saying, well, there's a new rule. You just didn't know about it. That's not a, that's just like a, uh, I want to keep this cause I like this. And so it's just a new rule. I don't, uh, like, of course you could say that about anything though, right? You could say that about the emergence stuff. Like, well, there could be rules that are influencing the pincers that we don't know about. We just only accounted for three Ma macro mechanics, natural selection and social organization. Like, Oh, but there could have been another one. Like you can just, ah, I don't like that move because you can do it wherever you want, whenever you want. No, that's what I like about Campbell's thing again, is that it's something that you can beat up if you want. Like, we could do something with that. Like, this other thing we can't do. It's just always going to move that goalpost is how it seems to me. And that's frustrating. I don't I don't like that because I thought, you know, I don't know. I just, I don't have respect for that as much as I do for somebody who's like, okay, here you go. I thought about this. You know, kill it. You know, whatever. Beat it up. See how far it can last. Do you forget all of this crap I added on top of it? Do uh -oh. you think that you get the nugget or whatever? The, the, the point this guy is trying to make when he says, there could never be a good reason to posit an emergent property as opposed to complicating our fundamental theory. Never be a good reason... To say that just slower. I'm there sorry. could never be a good reason to posit an emergent property as opposed to complicating our fundamental theory. Well, isn't that essentially what happens? Isn't that biology? Isn't that chemistry complicating your fundamental theory? Like, oh, crap, it was simple and beautiful, and now we have to add this other new wrinkle. Like, isn't that the whole point? That chemistry complicates physics. and Biology complicates chemistry. And, you know, psychology complicates biology. Like, don't the, isn't that the whole point of this whole thing? Isn't he just restating it in a way that puts it in a good light for reductionism? I don't really like what you just said, but it made me think of a possible counterexample of what this guy was saying. What about okay. Ptolemaic astronomy? What? It's not really an emergent property thing, but isn't that what the Ptolemaic astronomy thing was all about? It was just we keep our theory the same, but we just put in more epicycles to explain the anomalous data. You know, we see the stars slash planets appearing in places slightly off from where we thought they should be. Oh, well, that's because they also have a minuscule orbit around some other thing. You know, and we just add more yeah. and more and more miniature and Really, we just have a bad things. theory. So that's yeah. 
I don't know to what extent that's analogous or not to what this guy. That said. seems anal- that, that that seems similar though. That would be a good one if I had thought like of it. I would bring it up. Complicating the fundamental theory says the same. You complicate it rather than paradigm shift or whatever. Okay. Yeah, and that seems like, for instance, like the. You know the orbits of you know uh, you know the the fact that they wanted them to be circular and then they had to be elliptical and then they had to like change them around they had to perturb the orbits and then finally you've got Einstein who's just like gives you a whole other way of doing it and it works you know you're like oh okay the orbits work now in a way that they never did before if I have that correct mm-hmm. I think I think that's what you're saying. And instead of having an ever more complicated, you know, poke at the system type of way of saying it, you just end up coming up with a completely different theory for explaining it, like Einstein did or whatever. Completely is a bad word to use, but a different one. Completely different. Absolutely, completely out of left field. Um, So just... Yes, I don't like Pepper. In his explanation. that I didn't like that at all. All right. Fuck you, man. What's your name? Pepper? Pepper you're, something? You're garbage. No. I still think there's something <laughs> there, but I, there are also good responses. Should, um, so I wanted to real quick hop back to the earlier question and see if it is viewed differently in light of the fresh Campbell ants. If the concern is explaining the distribution of proteins in the region, how is even considering or talking about the epistemological abilities of human theorists, can we, at in 2018, reduce ants to proteins or not? How is that relevant to the question of what altered the location of that protein? The society or the atoms? I mean, is that, you know, the question you think one should pose when confronted with ants and their pincers? I thought we had agreed earlier that a good question, something that we cared to answer was, what explains the distribution of proteins in this region? Yeah, yeah, society or some new rules. In other words, like what pushes around the proteins or the atoms that make up the proteins? What causes them to be located where they are located? When I'm trying to answer that question, I don't see how it's relevant to consider epistemological emergence. You know, I don't want to think about what can or can't theorists reduce A's to B's or, you know, level ones mm-hmm. to level zeros. That doesn't seem to matter. What I want to know is what were the causal influences on the location of the atoms that make up this protein? Yeah. Uh, I... I hate to say it, but I kind of want to say, um, well, you're saying what were the, the major causal influences, right? Because I, 
Because even at the protein level, you know, if something's bumping into something else, it's, you know, it's going to have, you know, the positioning and stuff will be at a microscopic level determined by that. But that won't be the the overall general shape of a pincer or whatever you're saying, something like a Yeah. So, you know, this, I mean, the word that I like to use in this kind of location, and it's a huge word that deserves its own podcast or 10 <laughs> is relevant what were the relevant influences and determining relevance i realize is a huge thing but right right so uh yeah i mean my m- right now based on what campbell has to say and what pepper has to say i would go with campbell because at least there's something there with Pepper, all I get is some vague notion of there's a new rule somewhere out there that I just don't, you know. It's almost epistemological with with, with Pepper. To ad hominem you a bit, do you think that's because you really like examples that come from biology and you don't like total abstruse philosophical arguments that don't have obvious concrete connections to the things you typically think about. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it has to be biology. It could be any kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, it could be any, you know, it could be physical or, you know what I mean? It could be, like we were just talking about orbits and things like that. Like it could be that. I, it doesn't have to be um, biological. Uh, I definitely prefer those, and I, I'll, you know, I don't know if it's aesthetic or if it's, um, it helps me understand the problem better. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if it's if both, what have you. Um, but I definitely like those. They also, to me, are something that um, I can keep track of. And they aren't these, uh, I don't like anything where I could say it in any instance. You know what I mean? Like, I like it if, if, um, emergence is to be something, then it is to be something specifically and not, you know, like I just told you, like, I thought the, the, the move that Pepper makes, you could make as well in the emergence case of the pincers and the downward causation and all that. Like, there could be another factor involved in creating the pincers at the higher level, too. Like, so, I don't... I just don't... Yeah, that seems to me too wishy-washy, and you have gone nowhere, you know? And even I would then challenge you to say, well, maybe you are also doing something similar, and that you have an aesthetic preference for those kinds of moves. Um, and... Yeah, that would be my only thing to say about that. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, you he like went on too ant long. stories. Um, I like ants. Should stories. we even keep going? It's been a long time. We yeah. surpassed our two hours. Yeah. Although uh, I personally, again, don't think they have to be two hours long. I, yeah. I can be whatever. Just a good, this topic is awesome, I think. It's just yeah, easy it goes to on. keep going. Yeah, it does. 
Well, I don't know. Well, let's touch on this other thing. And if it goes somewhere, this will be a long one. And if it goes nowhere, then we're all... It's bonus time. I know. I'm like, I need to go get another beer. <laughs> I guess I could edit it out. Yeah, fuck that. Anyway. You, don't get to, you don't have time for that. And you need to be sober to hear this. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Go do it. Go. One of the emergentists that I like is the anthropologist biologist Terence Deacon and he wrote a big fat book relatively recently called Incomplete Nature which is all about this but prior to that he published an article that I think is wonderful and people who like and care about emergence should check it out called The Hole at the Wheels Hub and he has a kind of a new spin on this that we haven't yet touched on in any of the other people, which is summarized in uh, a quote that he includes in his article from nowhere else than the Tao Te Ching. Oh, yeah. Which runs this way. 30 spokes converge at the wheel's hub to an empty space that makes it useful. Clay is shaped into a vessel to take advantage of the emptiness it surrounds. Doors and windows are cut into walls of a room so that it can serve some function. Though we must work with what is there, use comes from what is not there. Is the Lao Tzu quote he includes. And his point is about what they call affordances, defined as a specific absence rather than a mere nothing. So, a large part of Deacon's point is that all absences, all nothings, are not the same. Some nothings are very particular and very important. The ones that are properly framed and can be teleologically employed by something else in the way I understand it. So I like, you know, for example, like a pitcher or whatever. Well, you know, the part that we use of a pitcher is the empty part, the nothing, the middle. There's no, from a certain perspective, there's no difference between just some air out in front of me or the air inside an empty pitcher, right? But mm -hmm. there are important differences to me between equivalent volumes of empty air in front of me and the empty air inside of a pitcher because I can do very different things with those two absences. And so mm -hmm. Deacon builds up affordances, possibilities, directions of arrangement of atoms based on these specific absences that I think is really interesting and useful. And he goes on to talk a lot about the whole, you know, complex systems and self-organization and the whole idea of the whirlpool and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's very interesting. No, I am definitely... But how does it uh, play into emergence? Deacon's definition of emergence is the spontaneous appearance of unprecedented orderliness in nature.
And I'll have to find further quotable passages. I have another question for you. Yeah. How are these affordances any different than a spandrel? Um, or are they the same? Say more about that. Like the spandrel. Remember the conversation we had before? Uh, that was an empty space created by the structure around it and then was made use of later. It's not too different than any other empty space of or space of wall yeah, mm -hmm. or what have you. And they use that in a very particular way. Yeah, I like that analogy. Yeah. So how might that relate to evolution and novelty and the origin of you know, traits and things like that, but that it may not necessarily itself be something selected for. I think we're just, we're in uncharted think, territory yeah. and riffing. No, I, I think feel this like... is a lot like spandrels, I guess. Or at least the way you're describing it and the way it seems to me right now. This is pretty similar. It's other than that in the spandrel case, it was a human architect who may or may not be conscious or whatever and appreciated an opportunity and the deconversions would be would clearly not include any kind of intelligent agency noticing and taking advantage of these affordances but rather that they would be spontaneous physical pattern like it just would happen it's not that anyone appreciates it, it um Here's a few more I mean, things to say about it that may or may not... What? Do you want... I was going to say, I mean, the spandrel just happened, too, I think. I don't think it in particular was designed. They go, oh, and no, then they no. noticed it. Like, this... you would notice the picture or whatever. You'd be like, oh. Well, I mean, I don't know if the picture you'd notice the empty space that you design it for it, but... Uh, yeah, I'm and... saying the spandrel just happened, but then putting a... Yeah, later, right. Putting art inside of it happened later. Yeah. Uh, more things that Deacon says about this. The principal hypothesis of this essay is that emergent phenomena grow out of an amplification dynamic that can spontaneously develop in very large ensembles of interacting elements by virtue of continuing circulation of interaction, constraints, and biases, which become expressed as system-wide characteristics. And I think, like... That word salad, whatever, hard to <laughs> get on a podcast. But I mean, I think the like the whirlpool example kind of gets at that, right? Um, there's nothing over and above the water molecules flowing down the river, and then the rock or other perturbation mechanism that changes the density or the you know, the flow, the likelihood of them going in any given direction. But once the system is perturbed in the right way, and you've just got your stupid water molecules following the laws of fluid dynamics or whatever they're doing, but there's less resistance to go northeast right now or whatever, and then they all just 
um, spontaneously develop this pattern, and then it amplifies. As soon as one says, oh, well, this is the easiest direction to go right now, so I'm going to go, that alters the likelihood of the trajectory of all the other ones, and then it just spirals, whirlpools, up. And then these emergent forms of causality, were there to be any, are due to a curious type of circular connectivity of causal dynamics, rather than a special form of causality, according to Deacon. Selective cancellation and amplification of interaction parameters is, I suggest, the key to emergence. Higher-order relationships are what I would call stochastic dispositional properties. So all the things that we look at and seem to be emergent for Deacon are just like bootstrapped. They're amplification processes that just happen. I'll see if I can find it. He has, you know, again, like Gulick, he has these three different levels. And it starts out as being just stupid physical patterning. But then sometimes when a spontaneous self-organizing feature occurs because of some kind of stupid physical dynamic, part of the time those can amplify far enough to move up to level two and then level three is like you know, life or whatever, the negentropic um, open systems like the Prigozhin, uh, whatever he called his, uh, I don't remember what they were called, but you know, you're taking in energy and information and material yeah. in order to maintain your non-equilibrium state and then giving off heat or whatever, you know. But that mm -hmm. all of that is just built up in this kind of ladder. Deacons um, has an analogy that I think is similar to Campbell's ants. We'll mm -hmm. see if, if to what extent this does anything for you or not. It better include critters. It kind of does. It includes <laughs> the inside. Well, I'm only interested the, in biology. The interior of critters. Okay. Quote, any of the components of an organism, say a hemoglobin molecule, can be given an arbitrarily complete and precise description in the language of atomic physics or chemistry. Yet, this description will miss something that is nevertheless materially relevant to its structure and its very existence. Right, so the first part, I think, uncontroversial, but then when he wants to claim that... You know, the thing that it's going to miss and is all of a sudden relevant to its existence, that's where it would get the emergence part and the controversy. Specifically, it will provide no hint of why this highly improbable molecular configuration is so prevalent compared to the astronomical number of molecular forms that are not present. So I'm saying the highly improbable molecular configuration is analogous to the pincer, right? There's a whole lot mm -hmm. of ways that those proteins could be distributed in the region, but they happen to be in pincer shape a lot, like, you know, a thousand times in our region or whatever. Uh, Deacon says, every atom in a hemoglobin molecule has a determined physical history you know, what I would call the um, 
the trajectory of the atoms in the region. Specific converging tributaries of pushes from one molecular event to another over vast stretches of time help to determine how each of the thousands of atoms came together to form any given hemoglobin molecule. But this is almost irrelevant. The more important causal story is told by what is not around, what did not end up as part of the molecule. Hemoglobin's existence must be seen against a backdrop of vastly more numerous molecular forms that were eliminated via natural selection. Almost every feature that biologists find interesting about hemoglobin has to do with how it fits with other things <clears throat> in the living context. So, to me, that's the same thing as Campbell, but using hemoglobin instead of pincers. What do you, what do you think about that extended quote? Well, I mean, I get the idea that, you know, uh, that, you know, the hemoglobin molecule is, <coughs> is present and all the other configurations are not. And that, you know, one explanation for why that is could be natural selection or something like that. Um, so what is it that he's, I need, I need to go back or something, something about, I'm missing something. So do I understand, is my paraphr or rephrasing like uh, on par with what he's saying? That I do understand what he's saying about the configuration? Yeah, what you just said sounded fine to me. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to understand, yeah. Yeah, if I didn't say enough to drill home the point uh, to continue with what I had highlighted... One of the problems yeah, yeah. with the articles I like is that I end up highlighting like too much of them. Okay, but he <laughs> yeah, also said, right. you're like the whole thing highlighted at the end. This fit was not created by the push of specific antecedent molecular events, but by the evolutionary canceling dynamic of natural selection that pushed alternative forms out of existence. Hemoglobin mm. occupies the space of possibilities that was left. So if we forget, like, try to play the reductionist game. Eliminate the body, the hemoglobin, the everything, and just look at the atoms in their distribution. In that case, yeah. you know, it's like a gas in a box or whatever. They could be in a vast, indefinite number of different locations. Most mm -hmm. of them are arbitrarily and evenly distributed amongst the available space, you know, so that you release a gas, you know, you squirt it in through a hole into a box, and pretty mm -hmm. soon it's not going to be concentrated near your insertion hole anymore, but evenly distributed throughout the available space. That's how the <laughs> atoms could be in, in our region of space around your body or whatever, but they're not. They're all inside your body. Well, not even that. They're inside your arteries and veins or wherever the hemoglobin is. And not only that, they're in a very particular and patterned shape with inside of that. As far as the reductionists, the fundamentalists, the physicists are concerned, there's nothing special about the shape that we call hemoglobin, that the biologist calls hemoglobin, but yet we see it. So that's the you know, burden shifting or whatever. It's like, physicists, tell me how the fuck this happened. Why do we see all of this? 
we have an answer because natural selection works and the alternative shapes for arranging hemoglobin are less fitness enhancing than this one some were tried some weren't tried but they were eliminated and this is where we are right now for a biological evolutionary reason that cannot yeah. be expressed in atomic terms I think is the point that a deacon or a Campbell yeah. would make yeah and it's funny because deacon just uses does he use anything other than natural selection as the force at the top level or whatever because I would say Campbell uses many you know compared to not many but he uses more and, and he uses natural selection as one of them yeah I think in the anyway, hemoglobin not, section I'm, it's natural selection but he also does lots of other things you know he's cool. in this article is one place where he does like snowflakes and he, you know he does all kinds of different stuff as examples of taking advantage of these affordances of these open spaces. Okay, now here's a question I have. How is, what is the affordance open space uh, for the hemoglobin molecule? The region of fitness, like, non-lethal arrangements of, you know, I don't know enough about the details to even know the terms, you know. But just the, okay. All right. I think I have so for it. a bunch of them, like you could arrange these, what, what are, I don't know, platelets, what, are the, what even makes up a hemoglobin thing? The molecules or whatever. There's all these arrangements that yeah. would just, you'd die instantly or whatever well those are eliminated by this higher level <laughs> thing called natural selection there are other ones that are not immediately lethal but are suboptimal compared to this one right that yeah they'll be suboptimal the, yeah. yeah and so that i think the history of your lineage in natural selection is kind of the edges of your picture right the outside of the picture is like instant death. Like it's just most of the air in the whole atmosphere. Like, okay, yep, that's all crap. Mm -hmm. And then we have this little range that's the boundary of the picture, which I think are the, maybe the ones that were tried but aren't great. And then the affordance would be the, the available shapes inside that won't kill you but are, you know, so they're accessible. Relatively like efficient. You know. All right, well, I don't I mean, again, I suck at the fucking details. Like, if it's carbon-based, you're like, okay, well, there's only so many ways you can attach other molecules to a carbon atom. Or other, you know, you can only arrange it in so many ways. So that eliminates some. So that's kind of, as we're at the pottery wheel making our pitcher, that's part of what shapes it. Oh, well, there's the rules of attaching things to carbon. And, you know... Uh, and then there's the history of our lineage, and that you know, and that's what uh, forms are the shape of our. Space. Yeah, I mean that's just another another good example, I suppose, of you know, um, things happening at one level that that determine, say, the distribution or the frequency of 
things than another. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember there's a few other things I wanted to say. Um, and I don't know how much they pushed the conversation along, but there was the, uh, I, I think I'm familiar with that article. Either maybe you gave it to me or I don't know. Um, and then I know the incomplete nature thing. And when I looked into the incomplete nature, and I may have talked to you about this before, but apparently like there are people who feel like he's like plagiarized them and stuff like that. So there's a couple other like philosophers out there who've written books or whatever. And I don't get the sense that, I I just get the sense that he didn't cite them and his kind of gone and taken their stuff and gone much further or something like that. I just had to mention that for some reason. I don't know why, but, uh, don't give air to those slanders. I don't know. I know nothing about it. Maybe he faked the whole fucking thing. I don't care about the, no, no, no. I don't think you could fake this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the ideas, I guess I'm, I am somewhat familiar with it. And I think, yeah, I I think I get it. Um, I don't think you need it though. To, you know what I mean? Like I I think it's great, but I don't think if the purpose is who how are we going to go about explaining this? Uh, I mean I think it's just a step beyond what he does is say here's this additional way of looking at it, but I don't think he's done. I don't think that he and Campbell are doing anything different. Um, well, where obviously I don't I'm see not how doing it justice right now, but I don't see how Campbell is addressing the affordance issue or the constitutive absence issue in any way at all. No, right. I mean, that's I think the whole point. That's what um, you know Deacon's clearly bringing to the table. Um, but does the I think maybe what you're saying to me is that the the absence is what helps you come back from Pepper or something. Is that right? Not necessarily. They just happened to come in that order tonight. Right. Okay. Huh. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, this is sounds like more, you know... Um, I'm not profoundly impacted by it. I definitely get it and I like it. I don't dislike it, but it is just like another way of talking about it. Um, but maybe I need to go back and read it myself uh, in more detail and learn to appreciate it more. Damn it. The Campbell is, you know, straight to the point. It's like two pages or whatever. And the yeah. Deacon one is yeah. more like 50 pages and convoluted and, a lot of content. Um, Word salad. Yeah, I still am in the position that I've been in for a few years. And I guess it's... I haven't found others who are there, and I don't know why. I think it's because people don't appreciate reductionism, even the reductionists. No, I don't. But know reductionism is still where it's at, and if I, I guess, if I had to today put my life on something or put my money down, I might even go reductionist. But when I, my hunches and my like where I put my effort is to attempt to develop 
emergence because I still have ex intense suspicions that that will ultimately win the day, though I don't know that it does in August 2018. For me, it's not nearly as simple as saying, yeah, I read Campbell, Campbell wins, boom, like, no shit, like, move on. <laughs> I like it, and I think it's impactful, but this is an issue where I can see both sides, which is not usually the case. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, for me, it's... Uh... If I had to decide on anything, it would it would definitely include uh, us and what we do, and if that has any bearing on the scenario. If it does, then everything is kind of suspect, and that's sort of the. But maybe you're, you know, that's I'm 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 glancing too hard into the uh, epistemological abyss. Um, well, to ontologically, me it's not at all clear that we exist. Huh? To you, it's not at all clear that we exist? Right. Well, And with the way that, I, I interpret just... reductionism or whatever, I think that the reductionist ought to claim that we simply, human beings don't exist. That's like, our, I've already told you, I'm a reductionist. What exists are atoms. Are human beings atoms? Nope. Well, they don't exist. Like, I think that's what should, that's what they should say, and they could easily be right. I don't think they could easily be right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think easily is the right word for that. Uh, they could be right, but um, they are the ones that have a much more difficult task ahead of them, I think. Mm, I think yeah, I think not. I think it, the... The burden is always on the positive for me. So if you want to add more stuff to the very simple claim, there's only atoms following the laws of physics, then it's this your is, job to do it. This is what I would say. <clears throat> this is how I'm looking at it right now. There's a middle, and you are now subtracting things or you're adding things, and either way is a burden. You have to explain to me why you can subtract things from the stories we tell. How you can get just a subtraction of language and, and, and all that. And you also have to explain to me how you can get language in the emergent pattern. Like, I don't know if any of these things are... I think they can just all be canceled out by just us talking and stuff like that. Just like the idea that we just talk and we construct these stories and this is how we think... And that, to me, seems to be the biggest issue. So going in either direction is a problem. I think so far the emergentists have done a much better job at handling it than the reductionists, who seem to basically just do one big leg sweep. And somehow you're enamored by that. Everything you said in support of that to me so far is just goalpost moving, and uh, it doesn't. you haven't done anything in the, if, in my opinion, for the case of of reductionism, and yet you've also brought up more like Deacon and other like it just seems like oh well all right so I, I don't know where reductionism actually works and I know you say that people don't appreciate it but I think you appreciate it too much and that's 
I'm not sure why you appreciate it so much. Because I don't think I'm incapable of trying to imagine what the reductionist is doing. Um, but I think the biggest, yeah, I think the the most sure-handed thing we have is just the way we talk about the world that we I think we're looking at. To continue using this spatial metaphor, what to you is this middle? I, what I heard you just saying is kind of like, well, there's a, um, a, a location in which we are all standing. And emergentism is off to the left and reductionism is to the right. And they both have a job of pulling me in their direction. I don't see it that way. What is the middle to you? I think the middle is just us. Like you and me right now talking. That's the middle. And then everything we do from that communicative you know, uh, system is to elaborate on the world and what it, it contains and what it's about. Uh, at least that's where I'm at right now. So one of the ways we try and talk about how things come to be is using the emergence and downward causation way of talking about it. Another way is to say it's all just fundamental particles or whatever. But both cases include other things we've learned about ourselves, which is that we like to split things up, we like to combine things, and those all produce hierarchies, and we see it when we look, when we examine our own language, like I'm repeating myself now from earlier, we see it when we examine our own tools and techniques, and we see it when we examine our stories for how things exist. And so to me, that's the middle, is just the way we operate. And we go around and we do our thing, and everything seems to have that same damn flavor. And so at the moment, the one to me that seems to have a better handle on the situation are the emergentists. Because they, to me, seem to include that core aspect of what's going on, which is you and me talking. I have no way to say if you want it to be all just, you know, reductionist shit. I don't know. Okay. I don't, you know, you show me like where can we go to, to do this? Um, I mean, other people have a much easier time seems to me anyway, saying like, here, let's go over here and I'll, I'll show you what, how the pattern looks and, and, you know, and how it seems to operate. Um, but, you know, I don't know. That, to me, seems where I'm at at the moment. That sounds, to me, like another good discussion. <laughs> like, uh, in, tonight we were talking a lot about the metaphysical fundamentals. This is kind of like the epistemological or rhetorical fundamentals or something. Where is our, where do we stand? What's our vantage point? from which we discuss alternatives and then using that to help determine burdens and what are we going to demand of people who make various claims, etc. That's an interesting topic. For another day! 
<laughs> I'm like, all right, well, that was how I ended this. That was my position. Yeah, uh, I'm ready to end this. But that was a good uh, one. I liked this one. Yeah, this one is uh, thought-provoking. Uh, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is, I don't, I, I hope we did this justice. That's my biggest one. Cause you know, when you look at the literature, I, when I was looking at various things, I couldn't dive as deep as I wanted. I was like, Oh fuck. <laughs> How are we going to do this? No, it's but huge. You, you, and, you know, hopefully yeah. if we exist long enough doing this, we'll revisit it. But there's a lot yeah, of other topics right. and there's, there's too much to know. And, Right. Whoever was listening to this while they read dishes or mowed the lawn is finished long ago and turned it off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I don't think. Like, mm. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll do more another time. Hope, okay. Hope justice has been served. Serving up some serious justice. All right. Boop boop ba doop. And.